just mentioned three categories that were great. You said peace and justice, and then you said critical thinking. Well, what was the yeah, second one? And, and Jewish, wisdom. Jewish wisdom, right. So that's a good place to start in terms of the, the kind of uh, subjects I want to cover. And sometimes it's good to start concretely and then, and then to move towards the abstract. And I'll, I'll get to the seven steps that I mentioned in terms of the outline. But I want to give it a context because the contexts are a little bit hard to imagine. My, my biography is, uh, is, um, is very unusual. I, I uh, began life and uh, my family has been in uh, Brookline, Massachusetts and Boston for about 100 years. Um, they come originally from Ukraine and from Lat Latvia, Lithuania, northwest Ukraine. Um, I grew up in a, um, a very orthodox family that was split between people who were orthodox and people who were no longer orthodox. It was a very large clan of at least 100 people just in my own clan. And I grew up in a very um, sheltered environment um, in, in, that, in that particular realm uh, and hardly knew anything about my past. You know, it's, uh, I came from a community like a lot of us come from that didn't want to talk about when, where they were from in Eastern Europe, didn't want to talk about it. So on one level, I, 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 I grew up in, a, in an environment where people were survivors. There's a lot of survivors around, like there are in our community. But on the other hand, it was a very good time in American history, and I felt very, very safe, but very isolated because we were very, very religious. And I, I, was, uh, I was in synagogue for most of my youth uh, seven days a week because even, you know, I went to the same school that was in the synagogue. And then I, even on Sundays I would go and we'd have extra classes and I was there three times on Saturdays. A very, very intense spiritual environment. And it was very comfortable for me. It wasn't considered radical. I didn't think I was part of anything radical. But the one thing that I didn't have is any knowledge or any contact with the rest of the 7 billion people on the planet or 6 billion people at the time. However, I studied with a person who, although his lifestyle was extremely punctilious and meticulous with Jewish observance and Jewish study, just study, constantly study, um, he also um, had a PhD from the University of Berlin in philosophy. And his mind, like a lot of the great European thinkers of the time, uh, there were many West European Orthodox thinkers who, before the Holocaust, were deeply committed to universal values. And this is a fact. It wasn't just the reform movement was deeply committed, but this was even in the Orthodox Western Europe, they were co deeply committed to universalism, and specifically to Kant and to other great philosophers. So this was the combination of a very secluded lifestyle and at the same time a very broad vision of humanity. It made me very curious about what the rest of the world is like and, and also very trepidatious and nervous. And as I developed this relationship with this teacher, more and more the questions of the globe became front and center for me about what the fate of humanity was and why, why were there so many people of different religions. And he had a lot of wisdom to him. His name was Joseph Soloveitchik. And in that process of developing that relationship, I also realized that um, in a post-Holocaust situation, in a situation of great nervousness about the fate of the Jewish people, um, many people were not equipped to deal with the rest of the world. So they were intellectually in a space where they were committed to humanity, but at the same time very afraid and very wounded, extremely wounded. Uh, a lot of my teachers were survivors and such, so their, their minds were trained before the war, but they, their bodies had been so damaged and their families 
that they themselves retreated into this world of extreme religiosity that I was a part of. So it made me both extremely sympathetic and comfortable in that world, and at the same time uh, wondering what's going to happen to this strange world that's so secluded in relationship to the rest of humanity. And that's, that's when I went, you know, I started a journey um, that, that basically I, I lived my life in books of, of all of humanity, but I was very much in this, this cocoon. And I think that that led me to a very interesting combination that, that led me to increasing curiosity over time. And by the 1980s, by the time I was in my 20s, I was very, very disturbed by the phenomenon of war. I'd always been sensitive to war as the ultimate evil. I was trying to figure out the Holocaust from the time that I was seven. I just couldn't get my mind off of it. What is it? What happened? Why? And I was studying. I started to study from the time I was 11 or 12. Um, I had a, a, a mathematics teacher who was a brilliant BA from Columbia University, and he was teaching us about the Stanley Milgram experiments in our, in our spare time. And the Stanley Milgram experiments were these very important experiments to understand issues of obedience and that it was that anybody could, could be subject to obedience, that it wasn't even something that was, there was something wrong with this country and their economy went to hell. And, 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 but no, you could take Yale University graduates and they could become barbarians in a matter of a, a couple of hours. So that, you know, to most people that was depressing. To me it wasn't. Because I don't know what it was about the can-do philosophy. I, my grandfather was this intrepid, you know, we say in Yiddish, bulvan. You know, he just, nothing would stop him, and he was a survivor. And, and for me, I started to translate that into intellectual life. Because every deeper analysis of science led me to a deeper understanding of what could be done differently. And sure enough, I had an intuition that later science would confirm and that is that whatever can make you obedient in a terrible direction can also make you obedient in very good, good, good directions. It all depends on what the messages were. Mm -hmm. And so since that time, we've started to learn a great deal about not just the psychology of war and, and violence and, uh, and mass murder. We have a tremendous understanding now of the psychology of, po of, of positive psychology. It's a whole field called appreciative inquiry. inquiry. Martin Seligman is one of the, one of the great... Uh, scientist of this field. He was one of the major leaders in understanding depression. Um, but he went through a transformation at a certain point, and he starts to realize that a lot of the, uh, uh, and this was true in my field of conflict analysis as, as well, that so many people were wounded by World War II, that so much of the thinking in the 50s and 60s by a lot of the men thinking about it is that they were obsessing with what's wrong with us, what's wrong with the human brain. Why do we commit mass murder? And, it would, and that very question started to skew the research. In other words, when you focus on the negative, that's all you find. And in the process of doing that, they were skewing what was possible with humanity. And that generation of men discovered a lot of important things. But they also were missing a lot of reality. They were missing some key realities that had become more and more uh, essential. A number of the women researchers, Elise Boulding, and, and then in the, uh, among the, the, the non-homo non sapiens, Jane Goodall and others, were starting to discover the pro-social transformative realities, scientifically proving that empathy and compassion were essential to human life. They weren't just an accident or do-gooders. It was actually essential to how people survive 
to how people evolve and also how animal communities evolve as well. Now that was, that was kind of surprising when people started thinking about this in the 90s. But over time, the evidence has become overwhelming that not only are those the essential aspects of what makes us social and what makes us thrive, it's also starting to add up the evidence from the Global Peace Index and many other indices that are indicating across the spectrum that we actually are nothing like what we used to be. That approximately, for example, 400 years ago, 300 years ago, there were 100 deaths per 100,000 by murder in, in Western Europe. And then by the time we got to um, uh, uh, our day, it's, it's less than one in 100,000 are, 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 are being murdered in, in, in European countries. In the United States, it's five. So that's five times as high. That's bad news. We have 30,000 death, deaths per year from guns. And it's very, very, it, it, you know the news that we're being assaulted by. We're being assaulted by how rampant gun deaths are. And it is a terrible situation. It is true. But on the other hand, by comparison to what it was a few hundred years ago, where the average lifespan was very small, because no one was taking care of, of people who were um, invalids or mentally ill. No one was caring about lifespans. Most children died. There weren't legions of scientists figuring out inoculations and ways of life saving. And now we're up to 75, 85, for some subpopulations, 95 in the lifespan. Like, uh, for some reason, Asian women are, the, are among the longest lifespans. So something has happened quite dramatically over the last few hundred years to make the human rights idea, which was a radical idea at the time, become more and more mainstream so that the arc of human moral inclusion has become more and more intense, and now it's moved towards sentient beings, towards, towards animal life as well. Curiously enough, what we know about the 19th century, the 19th century is the real, turn, <coughs> real turning point. In the 19th century, something dramatic happened, and that is that the literature that had been, we all, you know, people studied literature, everybody had their own literature, but something dramatic changed in that the subject matters in the literature started to become very poor people. So that Shakespeare was always writing about, you know, the famous, the rich and famous, the most powerful kings and queens. Victor Hugo was talking about, was writing about the poorest of the poor. Parallel to that, in, in, the, in, in Jewish life, the Hasidic community and the Hasidic masters were starting to write about the poorest of the poor, and the Baal Shem Tov and all the others. This shift towards literature and the use of imagination that started to focus on very poor, wretched people started to revolutionize the moral consciousness. And that massive increase in empathy and sympathy and awareness that Hugo and Marcel Proust and so many others started to, started to have an impact on what people argued for in terms of abolition, in terms of voting rights, in terms of social justice, in terms of, of fighting. Prison used to be, the death penalty used to be for stealing a piece of bread. Not that long ago. And then suddenly that, you know, with Jeremy Bentham and with others, that starts to, to be more and more unacceptable. Uh, prison starts to be seen as a place of rehabilitation or at least a place of, of protection of society, not a place of punishment and revenge. 
and that, and, and, or an opportunity to eliminate undesirables. Because when you have the death penalty for stealing a piece of food, that's not really about meeting out punishment for justice. It's about getting rid of somebody you don't want in your streets. And there are still places in the world where indeed that happens. So this shift has led to a dramatic increase in lifespan. And this is, this is good science. The science is irrefutable that not only is this about the average murders, but thank you very much, but it's also about the, um, the massive decrease in war. And this is hard to imagine for us because we have small lifespans ourselves. It's hard for us to imagine that the 70 million people who died in World War I and World War II is somehow that we're still decreasing. But the numbers over 400 years are dramatic and they're clear. And especially in the last 50 years, the amount of wars between states has plummeted to, um, to, to negligible. Now, again, from a psychological point of view, we don't think that. And we don't think that for two reasons, according to the scientists. One is that one is, is what is the media? The media, when you step back and look at it biologically, what is the media? The media is our alarm system. It's what makes us afraid. Well, it turns out that biologically speaking, we're supposed to be afraid. We have instincts going back millions of years of how to protect ourselves from danger. The most basic forms of danger are, um, you know, you're in the jungle. If you're lackadaisical about life and say, oh, aren't lions nice, you know, you know, dead. You know, if you don't react to the rustle in the jungle and run, then, then you're dead. And now, though, biologically, we have very hardwired to react very strongly to bad news in the same way that our ancestors for millions of years have been very strongly motivated to react to a rustle or, 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 or you know, the slither of a snake, you know, and, and, and we, we would jump. If you've ever seen the, the videos on, on, on uh, Facebook of cats that, that, that jump into the air when the, you put a cucumber next to them <laughs> because they've, they've, had, they've had a lot of evolution to be extremely reactive to a snake being anywhere near close to them so that they now are programmed to jump into the sky to get, get away from the snake. Those are very hardwired ideas, and there, there's a health to them. Unfortunately, in our life of social organization, that adrenaline that comes and that adrenaline rush from hearing bad news is pushing us to be overreactive to things that are extremely isolated incidents. So we're not judging scientifically every day when we look at the news. There's no news, there's no local news that says, you know, uh, 500 people's lives were saved today, 1,000 people were born um, successfully, um, uh, 95% of the families had a, a good supper together, and the kids were positively reinforced. We just hear about the kid that was put in a closet, this one that shot that one, you know, all the exceptions to uh, a general trend, and, and, it, and, and it, 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 it aggravates us, and the news benefits from that, and the corporations benefit from that. The other thing is that progressives have a tendency to emphasize the negative because they want people to give to causes that focus on the negative things that are happening, and that's understandable. The question we have to ask at this point in history is, is that actually functional, or is it dysfunctional? If we have made a tremendous amount of progress on human rights, 
Do you get more people involved in human rights by leading them to despair? Or do you lead them to a sense of empowerment and success that things are going well, we need your help to make it go better? That we're killing far fewer people here than ever before, but in Sweden it's even less? That in Sweden they have a far, far more advanced notion of early warning for children who are in trouble, the children who are being hit, children who are getting angry, and, and we can learn from them. So we need to get a little closer to the death rates in Switzerland when it comes to coping with crime, coping with violence, coping with being upset. Would that be a better frame? So this is one of the interesting controversies going on in academia about the fact that the facts seem to be that things are much, much better, but at the same time we're, we're sending off a lot of the alarms. And are those alarms helpful? And is that the best way to motivate people? Because in point of fact, one of the dangers of giving bad news to people all the time is that it leads to a sense of despair and depression. And despair and depression are not good motivators to get people to be active. So this is, this is some of the evolution in our field that we've been thinking about. It even comes down to the level of, at the cutting edge of the science of our field, is that, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, we do a lot of work on, on um, negotiations theory and conflict resolution and big problem solving with countries that are at war with each other. And, and the, the, the theory and the practice has been something called problem-solving workshops. Now, these problem-solving workshops focus on a problem, and you put enemies on both sides of the table, and they go at it about the problem. The trouble is that that method is focusing, it perpetuates the problem. Because everybody's putting their best intellectual efforts on figuring out the problem, and then they, they, they convince themselves that the problem is not solvable. And in particular, when you put enemies at a table, they tend to polarize in terms of why it's your fault, not my fault. Right? That's the nature of problem-solving workshop. Well, I want to describe to you other methods that we're looking at today and also connect them to the relationship between science and Torah. And that is that we're seeing a number of things globally. The ones that I've mentioned are not the only ones um, that are lessening violence in very bad situations. And they're not focused just on problem solving. It's on different, different characteristics. How do I come to this work? How did I come to these conclusions? So I've been working for about 30 years in this field. And most of what I've done is more in the positive psychological realm of trying to help people um, who are already peacemakers to come to know each other and to work together across enemy lines. So some people work with, I've worked with very violent people, but um, occasionally I was asked to bring in and I met some very, uh, very dangerous leaders. But for most of my time, I've been focused on the problem and the question of why there are so many good-natured people and peacemakers and they don't know each other and they don't work together. Because one of the things that happens in very bad situations, uh, dictatorships, etc., is that everybody becomes very fragmented and very suspicious of one another. And particularly in dictatorships, which I've worked in, the, the goal of the dictatorship is to demoralize human relationships, to take away empowerment and agency, and make everybody suspicious of everybody. The main way you do that is through, is through uh, spies, spies everywhere, and people telling on each other and everybody having a record. But there are many other creative ways. One of the ways you do is that you also convince minorities that the only hope for them is to stay with the dictatorship because the majority is out to kill you. 
and they also this false flag operations. Have you ever heard of false flag operations? So false flag operations are that, you know, for example, I've worked in Syria for 13 years inside the dictatorship. So a false flag operation will be, um, you know, killing a Christian and then providing machine guns for all the Christians in the neighborhood and saying the jihadis are about to get you. And this is how you provoke and, and create uh, a, a dynamic between Muslim and Christian in order to keep you needing the dictator to keep in power. Now, the, the tricky thing, and the reason why this was so confusing to people in every dictatorship, is that there's always some dangers that are based on reality. I mean, the, these are, there, there are real criminals out there. There are real people who could get you. But it's the design of somebody who wants to stay in power to make, to make everybody afraid. So in that context, how would, you, how would you then inspire people to, be, to rise above that? Very difficult question. Um, and we've had a lot of dictatorships, and people have evolved out of those. So let me, um, so based on my experience, uh, let me just outline this slow march. Uh, what I'm argu- arguing for is a slow march towards less violence and acceler- accelerating less violence as individuals, communities, and states. So part of it is the shift in thinking and the shift in behavior and the shift in policies. There's three different ways in which people change for the better. One is their thinking. Two is their behavior, and three is the policies that they create. So these, these three have to work together in concert, in, in concert. And there are seven critical steps, one of the towards a more enlightened kind of peace. One of these that I've already described is empowering the positive, generating vision, and change in ideas, in the human mind, and the will. It turns out, and just hear me out on the science of the brain. They, with fMRIs, fMRIs are are a kind of imaging that they can do with the brain now to watch your moods and your changes and your reactions to thoughts and other things, and they can track these things. So one of the exciting developments of this fMRI work is that that, um, we know where the amygdala is. The amygdala is in the lower stem. And the amygdala is kind of in charge of your most primitive space of what's called fight or flight. Remember I talked about the cat that jumps up out of the sky into the sky from the cucumber? That's the, that's the amygdala, that's the lower, or the lower brain. The highest brain is the neocortex. And this is the place of critical thinking and reflection. So if you, if you right now, uh, who could scare me? If you come up to me right now and say, you know, I'm a, I'm a member of ISIS and you're about to die. You know, you have a beard and everything, and you know, it's like, and you know, and I've been, I've been in places near ISIS, and, and, I, and it is a bit of a trauma for me right now that I've been that close. And if you could say that, I would, I, would, I would get a little bit, you know, I would get nervous, right? And if you came at me, then I would really react this way. Now, that'll be my amygdala reacting, right? As soon as I, my blood pressure goes up, that'll be my amygdala. Because the blood pressure and the adrenaline is there to make me afraid so that I'll take action. The action must be running away, right? Now, if I, at that point, if we start to talk and you say, no, I'm not ISIS, um, I'll, say to you, I'll, I'll say to you, you know, I'm feeling very nervous right now. So when I say I'm feeling very nervous right now, that's actually my neocortex in control. Yeah, it's the higher brain. Because when you can name your feelings, your, your, your brain is in control of your feelings. 
And immediately you're short-circuiting the tendency for it to become a spiral where I'm going to punch you or I'm going to run away from you and we're going to get into this thing. So that process of short-circuiting by naming feelings, by, by understanding what's happening, that's all part of what becomes a less violent encounter. Okay? So the key to that is imagination and vision. When you think about the future, you're activating your neocortex. When you think about the past, you're activating your more libidinal feelings. So when you think about your past with a, a, a difficult parent or a difficult sibling and everything they did to you and all the reasons why you're so upset, that's your raw emotions talking. But when you think about when somebody asks, well, what, what kind of future relationship do you want? How do you want to, you know, where do you want to be by the end of your lives together as family? Then suddenly you're operating in a different space. And you calm down and your blood pressure goes down and other parts of your brain start activated, getting activated. And if this is true about asking somebody about their family, it's exactly the same with wars. It's exactly the same with gang violence. It's exactly the same with prisoners. Exactly the same you know, with the city of Arizona in terms of, of mass crimes. Is that when you talk to people about what happened, what did he do to you, who's responsible, then you're all you're based in the libidinum. When you say, what kind of community do you want to live in? What do you want your relationship to be? How do you want your kids to grow up here? Your whole brain changes. And then your biology changes as well. So one of the things that is lessening violence in the places that this happens is the focus on, on change, on positive change, in the way in which we Socratically provoke these conversations. So when I've worked with the women in Syria, the, the key thing I always ask them I hear their stories. I hear the suffering. It's unbelievable. And it evokes in me extreme trauma. We actually know in the brain now that if you tell me a sufficiently traumatic story, I get traumatized. Okay? And I've been traumatized by some of these stories that I'm not going to repeat here. But if I then turn around and then I ask you, what do you want to happen? So I would ask every time I went through these very painful conversations with these women, young and old, what they went through and what happened, it was very traumatic. But then when I would ask, you know, what do you want? What do you want to happen? They'll say, they'll say, I want it to stop. I want it to stop. And the women, particularly, when they were responsible for the children, the main thing they wanted was ceasefire. And so three years ago, I started working for a ceasefire with my partners and with the women partners that we have. And now, suddenly, this year, all of that filtering up to State Department and to everybody else that ceasefire, ceasefire, then everybody was talking ceasefire. So we socialized an idea that came originally from provoking the vision of the women and the children and what they wanted. You see? So there's a very direct relationship with these, with these, you know, these choices in conversations, with these choices in where rage comes in the conversation or where hope comes in this conversation or where imagination comes. What is the role of empathy? Empathy, if it's done the wrong way, can actually lead people to greater rage because I could just be empathetic with the hor horrific stories I got and then I'm going to go out and say, we have to kill Assad. I join the crowds. The only answer is killing Assad. We have to kill, kill, kill. And of course, on the other side, they're saying we have to kill the jihadis. That's the only answer. Kill, kill, kill. 
if I stayed just with the, with the trauma of what I heard. But no, we tried to work it on positive vision. And it turns out that it's worked. Even in the worst war in the world today, there is no war that has caused the greatest amount of refugees and the greatest displacement of people in perhaps um, contemporary history as this horrific war. And I can go through the proxy reasons why. Which war? In Syria. Between, and the, the war in particular between uh, Iran and Saudi and Qatar on the ground and Russia uh, as well. And this is one of the worst places in the world where that is happening. So if we can have positive vision in that war and these women can, then, then, then almost anybody can. And that's what we're learning from these things. So that leads to the second step, which is teaching and modeling empathy in local and global relationships. So this is just following up on what I said about the, the revolution in literature. It turns out that literature and movies and, the, and anything you can do to get one person to empathy, to empathy with someone else is changing our nature. It's building us into more enlightened beings, into less violent beings. The, uh, the third is the fact, and this is the big surprise, the third is teaching and modeling shared reason in the service of universal principles of enlightened society. The most life and happiness for the greatest number of people or sentient beings. Now, we used to think caricature of the Enlightenment was that mature people are reasonable people, but people with too many emotions, they're getting in the way of our conflict resolution and our negotiations. You've got to get, get the emotions out of mediation and negotiation. Well, it turns out it's the opposite. It turns out that the more that you can provoke empathy in people, the more that they then move to the classic notions of the setting up of reason on, on what should be done. In other words, a reasoned position, a rational position is, how, how are we all going to get along in this particular committee right now? So if I have more and more empathy with each one of you, then when we come to setting up the rules, we have a much bigger motivation to use our reason to come up with a reasonable rule based on that. Okay? That's, that's surprising because it turned out that in history a lot of people made fun of emotions and now all the research is suggesting that um, the emotion of empathy, compassion is critical to the develop, development of human reason. So just getting every kid in the country to read a very good novel that takes multiple perspectives is training them in reason, not just empathy. Because it's making them understand multiple perspectives, really getting into the heart of many others. And that means when they then sit around the political table, they have far greater empathy with each position, and they have to come to new positions of shared reason. That leads to a couple of other things. One is what has led to the greatest amount of these relationships. One is that women have become far, far more empowered than ever before in history, and that women and networks of women have been, been helping us in war zones in ways that nothing else has helped. So the empowerment of women and the sharing of reason between men and women appears to be making less violence on a global scale. The second thing is, is commerce, but commerce in, in, in the fair commerce between strangers. 
that business relationships, if they're done on a people-to-people level, actually make people far less violent. There's, if I can go through the examples in Syria, but basically the Damascus, the Damascus business people were the last ones to want the place to fall apart. There's a motivation in business when you have partners from many, many different groups to become less violent, to stay less violent. And that's something that we need to consider in terms of what we invest in on a global scale. This all leads to the fact that these shared businesses need laws that govern those businesses. So the other thing that's leading to a fantastic decrease in violence is international law. And all of this was predicted by some of the great thinkers in Europe, Immanuel Kant and others, about an increasing level of international law. So in the last 20 years, the, the international law has gone from you know, a few hundred to, to many, many thousands of international laws. Increasingly complex international civilization based on the rule of law. And we have a long way to go because so many things are unjust. So many of these business relationships are favoring the 1%. So many things are wrong, and yet it's also linking people in very nonviolent ways. Those are the seven steps. Now, I want to transition um, in that to the question of how does this relate to the deep you know, spiritual life of people who are, who are struggling with these values? Can it relate to people in spiritual traditions? So here's, in my opinion, these are some of the ways, and then we're going to have a discussion about it. There are many problems with religion that you're well aware of as progressive religious people. One is that if these steps, and by the way, the, the seventh step that I emphasize, I forgot to mention, is loving and caring for strangers, the eagerness to meet the stranger, that all of these appear to be the curiosity about the stranger, or people of difference. All of these appear to be making a far less violent planet. Uh, in the last 50 years. Going back to the first one about empowering the positive and generating vision and change. To me, the mitzvot involved are the following. One is that in Jewish tradition, the faith in the future is key. And Herman Cohen, the great Herman Cohen, was the one that understood this the most. The concept of Mashiach Is, is not just a person, it was an era. It was an idea in Isaiah and all the other prophets that there would be a time when justice and peace and compassion would unite. That very idea, that bold idea that things can get better and that, things could, and that we need to work towards that in the future is a, very, is a very positive orientation and a very future orientation. So it is possible for religious traditions to emphasize that particular quality. Now, the biggest challenge we have with that is that most religious traditions have a, another tendency, and that tendency is to limit the arc of morality to people who are in, in the same faith and in good standing. There's a preferential treatment that comes out in a lot of organized religions, and that is the challenge. Because when you look at the actual mitzvot, the actual commandments, the actual good deeds of the religious tradition, There's a very advanced set of qualities in terms of compassion for the other, in terms of coming to know the other, 
You know, you have statements in Pirkei Avos, Ezehu Chacham Alamein Bikol Adam. Who is the wise person? The person who learns from every person. So wisdom comes from learning from strangers. That's a very bold idea. Not from books, not just from the Talmud, but from every human encounter. That's a powerful idea. Ezehu Muchubad, who is honored? He who honors all human beings. That's a very powerful idea. Very powerful idea that loving your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus is the essence of the whole Torah, according to Rabbi Akiva. Corresponding idea in Ben-Azai is that every human being is created in the image of God. The idea that sacredness is in all living things. All of these things have their parallels in the universal qualities that we were talking about in those seven steps that lead to less violence. The challenge, of course, is that these are certain texts within religious traditions, but when a, when a tradition is 3,000 years old, there's many other countervailing texts. So in many ways, we can't get away from the fact that spirituality and religion is a living embodiment. It's not all the texts. It's the faith that you have in the future and whatever you think of as the sacred combined with these traditions that come from your, from, from your, your, your past, from your ancestors. There's no escaping it. We're all building our faith all the time because the tradition is 3,000 years old and it has many countervailing things. But these are realities, and it's, it's quite comforting that Rabbi Akiva, Ben-Azai, Hillel, they all believe that this notion of radical empathy is at the core of the tradition, the core of the message. These reinforce what we're seeing as less violent um, tendency, tendencies within, within the religious traditions. And I could go through a lot of the religious texts in the, uh, in the other seven steps, but um, I wanted to begin with, with this particular introduction, and then I wanted to have it be more of, a, of an interaction between all of us. Uh, and and uh, um, Because I, I think that you know, these, these are complicated matters of suggesting something for the globe becoming less violent and how we can make it more so and where religious tradition or Jewish tradition can fit in. So I want to I wanna get a lot of your questions serially. You know, in other words, if several of you say a few things, and then I'll respond um, to that, and then we'll move on from there. Is that okay? Good. Okay. So who would like to begin with some thoughts? Um, how do you respond to the cynic who would say, well, wouldn't it be good for death-loving jihadis to die, how do you persuade them, how do you persuade a modern version of someone so vicious and so with such bloodlust, how do you persuade them to have empathy for the person whose throat they're about to slit? Right, right, okay. So um, what I'm going to do is take a serial set of questions and then, but let me just... Um, Okay. Yes. <coughs> Who else? Yes, please. Logic appears relevant to you. Oh, wait a second. Um, could you tell me your name? Aaron. Aaron. And your name? Mark. Mark. Logic appears relevant to you, but is it to everyone? Say it again. Logic. It, you seem logical. Right. But not everyone is equally logical. Right. Right. Rabbi. Um, I have so many, but I'll, I'll limit it to two for now. Okay. One is picking up on Marx. 
Um, yeah, it, 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 it seems to imply that a lot of the encounter is in the realm of reason. Uh, once you move beyond the empathy realm and compassion realm into forward-looking thought and reason imagination, that sort of brackets the potential need, psychoanalytic need, of the sort of the much deeper subconscious realm where violence might emerge from, and I wonder sort of how that's incorporated. Uh, my second question is, for those of us who are deeply pained, I imagine that's everyone in the room, by violence that happens locally and internationally, what might it look like for us to be constructive agents uh, in response to that? Okay. Any others that want in this round that would like to respond? Okay. Um, okay. So one of the things that's assumed, and this is where there's a difference between <laughs> mega studies and statistics and, and, and actual cases, is that statistics teach you a great deal about trends and about surprising things that you didn't realize. And it's the same as, this is like epidemiology in medicine. Medicine and biology have a, lot, have a lot in common with the analysis of violence and conflict. And that is that they can predict tendencies of what a drug would do, but they can't guarantee it in any particular patient. So, we, so what we're coming to the conclusion of is not about um, uh, people who are particularly advanced in a state of disease. It's about what galvanizes the majority and makes people less violent. So there is a danger in always focusing things on the most radical cases. So that, for example, um, one of the choices of policy, one of the choices of, of war, is the question of torture. So when people talk about torture, they always talk about a very exceptional case of somebody being in a moment where you know, if you don't torture this guy, you're, gonna, you're not going to get information and somebody's going to die. Well, that sounds all nice and good. It turns out that the research says that that's 99% untrue, is that, is that those are rarely the circumstances in which torture happens. Torture happens when a, a young corporal is sort of given an indication to take the gloves off. Nobody cares. There's not enough guards in the prison. And she decides to have fun with a dog and a bunch of naked men. That's when torture happens. Torture happens when nobody's looking in a prison in San Francisco. So the, and that, the, it's good to discuss the moral cases of a hard choice between a greater evil and a lesser evil and to make and to figure out, and it's very good for the brain, and we don't do it enough, is to think about what would Kant say about that situation? What would John Stuart Mill say? How do you add up good and bad in terms of torture in this particular situation? That's a good exercise. But it's deceptive if people think that that is statistically where things are going. Statistically, people are much better off in a world in which there is no torture. That's, that's been the case. It's the best way to save your own soldiers, etc., etc. So it's the same thing with ISIS. ISIS is one of the... Uh, if you look at it from the outside, ISIS looks like, okay, there's about 50,000 incredibly enraged, barbaric folks being part of ISIS or Boko Haram in, uh, in other places. And of course, and I, and I say this as a, you know, from a rabbinic halachic point of view, but also from an ethical point of view, your prior obligation is to save innocent lives. But that's where it gets tricky. 
because it's not so simple. And I was talking this out with my son um, the other day. I said, okay, so um, you think that ISIS should be in prison, right? What if they don't want to go? He said, well, if they don't want to go and they're killing people, you have to kill them. I said, okay, what if they're holding hostages? He says, what if they've surrounded themselves with 50,000 civilians? So he immediately said, well, then you can't kill them. Your son said you cannot? Yeah. Because if they're, if they're surrounded by 50,000 civilians, mm-hmm. and there's, say, 1,000 fighters, mm-hmm. and the answer is to bomb them, I said, well, yeah, but if you don't bomb those, those 50,000 people, those 1,000 soldiers, those 1,000 extremists, they may spread themselves ever, anywhere and you know, bomb a place in Brussels. So he said, why are you asking this of a 13-year-old? That was his response to me, <laughs> which, was a good, which was not a bad response, because there wa- I wasn't looking for a right answer. What I was looking for was hit for him to, to step back from an emotional response to the concept of terrorism and to try to think out the principles he was operating with in order to make a very painful, difficult decision about, about a radical space. So that's answer number one about that is that we all need to come to a space of dealing with radical criminals and, and really thinking through the implications of every decision we make about more or less violence and how to, how to cope with it. The second thing is to really um, is to understand the structural and larger reasons why ISIS exists. And once you get into the depths of that, and I've been working on this for many years, And I don't just work on this in terms of books. I'm on the ground. I'm on the ground with the people. I've been next to ISIS. I've been in the same hotel, the hotel next door to ISIS. My friends have been killed by ISIS. So I have friends that I've persuaded to not go back into Syria and sacrifice their lives in order to defeat ISIS. So I'm very, very, very in touch with the situation. And I can tell you that nothing is what it seems that they look religious and they turn out not to be religious. That's a very important fact. They look like they're doing this in the name of religious extremism, and when you find out their true identities, they are secular criminal Baathists out of control who decided that they could seize a state. And I knew this three years before it got into the American papers. That, and that, that changes your analysis and your ethical calculations. Then what, what is it? And how do we defeat it? And is this, a, is this a religious battle or is this a Sunni battle against a Shiite in Iraq? Is this Iran versus Saudi and Qatar? And the overwhelming evidence is that we have a series of proxy wars going on across the region between two large battling uh, empires, an Iranian, a Saudi, and a Qatari empire on the ground in Lebanon, in Egypt, in Syria, in Libya, and almost every country in the region, which, again, changes your calculation of how shall I deal with this. Because suddenly, when you uncover all of these facts, you discover that you have a tremendous amount of Muslim allies who feel exactly the same way, because they're the greatest number of victims of ISIS are Muslims. And they feel hijacked. They feel disempowered by the states in the Gulf that are doing, playing with them like horses, you know, running horses. 
and it gets, I'll get, I, I don't want to go into too many details about the situation on the ground, but it's, it's amazingly not what, like what you're reading. So that I've saved lives from certain people I'm not going to mention, but certain people who you would think are radical Islamists who've saved Christian lives based on the social network that the women created. Because very often people are kidnapped in these crazy situations in most wars for money, because this is how you make a living too. Now that sounds crazy, but men do crazy things in war. Men do crazy things in war. And it's, it's sometimes it's preventable based on relationships. Everybody who's been in war actually knows that relationships can change what looks like it can't be changed. So I would argue that the evidence is that yes, there will come, be, come to be points in which there are people who have to be killed in order to save other people. But be very, very careful about generalizing about that. Be very, very careful of the level of your use of force. You know, because if you use excessive, you, would, you actually kill more innocent than you save. And many, many other factors. Be very, very careful about believing everything that you read. Come to know strangers. Come to know the other. And it's exactly the same thing going to Rabbi Shmuley's question about Arizona, about your own city. Don't believe a 30-second report. Don't believe anything about anyone until you've done your own relationship building and investigations, because it's almost never the way it appears. And with that more complex information, you're capable of making more logical, more reasonable, and more empathic decisions about the use of force. I'll give an example from my own life. I, like everybody else, I, I actually do, you know, I, 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 the majority of what I'm talking about is coalition building between people of good, of good values. That there are billions of people who are actually operating on positive moral senses, positive empathy in every culture in the world. There are thousands and thousands of peace organizations in every country. In every country. These people come to me all the time. You don't hear about them in the news. They're there. So one of the things that we're, we're all very absorbed in right now is all of the different um, killings of African Americans by police because we've seen one film after another film after another film and we're so upset by it, right? So Facebook gets you riled up about this. You want to take revenge. You want the police to be fired. You want the police to be imprisoned and so on and so forth. Now some of that pressure and there is good to, to organizing pressure, has led to much more swifter firings of police I've noticed in the last two months than I noticed a year ago. So there is something to coalition building and building up resentment, righteous resentment when something is wrong. But the other thing is that as I've done this, I've reached out to police. And a, and a number of police and military and intel people are my students who are keenly interested in conflict resolution. The surprising thing when you get into the real world is that a lot of people with guns are interested in peace. Think about this. Can you imagine a Taliban who is fighting with the Taliban during the day in North Pakistan and at night is studying peace in Islam? Can you imagine that the bombs trying to get at him in North Pakistan 
during the day are American bombs, and the, and the, and the program teaching Islam and peace at night is an American program? Can you imagine talking to him and saying, well, why are you going out during the day? He said, that's my life. That's my job. So this is the complex world we live in. And that means that every single conversation with anyone who has a gun is a worthwhile conversation. So I've had conversations with police officers more and more. And I've started to notice the mistakes that people make when they're angry at the police. You have to hear narratives and the complexity of narratives in order for you to develop empathy and a better set of advice. So when a cop in Washington, D.C., who's my student, says to me he was so angry and hurt because uh, a certain leading politician said, there are too many, too many police officers killing black people. And he said, I go every day to my squad, and we're white and black together, and we're facing a situation where we don't know who has guns that are pulling the guns on us. And we're white and black together dealing with this. And he's telling me that it's my fault as a white officer. So from his narrative in Washington, D.C., in his particular district, and he says, and you know the reason why we pull them faster in southeast Washington? Because almost everybody that we meet has a gun. In terms of the kids we're going to stop. So our reaction time has to be completely different than in the upper-class neighborhood in Washington. He said, and that's why we fire fast. So you see, that complicates the story. And that... That doesn't mean that there shouldn't be better training. That doesn't mean that there aren't abusive officers out there who should be fired right away. But if we had greater empathy for the average police officer and the choices he's making and the terror he feels, then we could probably do a better job of helping him and us together to fire the bad apples. Because everybody knows here that it's the polarization where police offices, departments hunkered down and said it's us against them because they all think that we're devils now that they've seen the videos. So when you complexify the story, when you reach out to people, then you start making common cause at a deeper level of empathy and reason, and then you figure out, say, okay, well, how do you want to stop this? So this is how I want to stop it. How do you want to stop it? Suddenly you come up with 10 suggestions, and it's more complex and it's more reasonable and it's more universal. And that's where, that's where I would apply what we're seeing for less violence in other parts of the world. But it will take a great deal of empathy with people who you might not know and people who you might not want to know. But, but that journey, it's the journey I, I began, that I, I should have said, is the journey I began as a, as a kid in a highly parochial atmosphere in a post-Holocaust situation. My journey was I was terrified of Gentiles. You know? I liked Immanuel Kant, but I was terrified of Gentiles. My mother had me walking on the other side of the street from a Catholic church. She said, don't walk on the same side of the street. I said, so I didn't walk on the same side of the street. I grew up and I said, my mother, oh God, she did something wrong. And then I started reading history, and sure enough, in Italy and other places, there were places where Jews were kidnapped and brought up in the church and not given back. And in fact, one pope, but what my mother doesn't know is that the last pope that did that, the Italian community hated him so much that they made laws against that after that pope. It was somewhere in the 19th century. 
But, you know, she, coming from Latvia, she had a memory. So I empathized with her, but then I moved out there, and then I, I rejected her, and then I empathized again because I started seeing it from multiple perspectives. That brings you to a greater space of reason. My second place of fear was not Gentiles. It was, frankly, it was Arabs and it was Muslims. And the journey into that world has changed my life completely about what I thought the problem was. It went from what to what? It went from, from, from fearing a religion and a culture to fearing the, the abusive power of oil that makes a very small number of people exceedingly powerful, that they can tyrannize 1.6 billion people, and that our own thirst for oil is a part of that problem. And that, and that you know, the world over, all of my Sufi partners and my Muslim partners and my Christian partners were all in this together, even in a place as radical as Syria, that I found so many humanitarian people, such, so generous, so honoring of a rabbi, I grew up thinking that's impossible. How could a rabbi go on national television in Syria and have millions of people listening and thousands of students? It's not possible. Nobody even believed me that it was possible, but we, it was possible. And that didn't mean that there aren't severe conflicts with Syria, but it was, it was a fact. And it was my journey across fear <coughs> to the stranger. And I believe that if everyone did that in Phoenix, just one person who you never otherwise would meet, is that that's the key. That is the key, because the collective effort of that social network and the stories that that teaches you will change everyone and make new solutions possible. Yeah. Uh, is there a, um, uh, an ideal age in the lifespan to learn that? What's your name? Please? Mari. And is there a length of effectiveness? Right. So part of my question is, if you had a couple of gazillionaires together, and what would you want them to do? Invest in preschools all over the planet that teach empathy, or uh, colleges, or correct. You know? Correct. Um, yeah. Well, N name please. The, my name's Erwin. Um, the situation that many of us are most uh, concerned about in terms of conflict, which seems unresolvable is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Yeah. So um, can you talk a little bit about what this peacemaking looks like in that context? Right. Um, right. Okay. So let me, let me talk to uh, Rabbi Maurice uh, um, uh, first. So this is tricky because uh, I, uh, my, my feeling is that the most urgent need is with adolescents because um, adolescents have far, far greater power over our world than we, we realize. They are, they, are the number one, um, they are the number one actors in all violence in terms of gang violence, in terms of crime, and in terms of uh, wars, in terms of, of, of terrorist groups, etc. Um, the age is actually going younger. A lot of the, the, the terrorist networks are now using children as so suicide bombers, the Boko Haram, etc. But I think the adolescents, on a positive sense, are also the most exciting and malleable group because they also are the group that will become 18 in a second. And so they're at the cutting edge of social change in democracies as well. So I think that's a very, very important group, and I think that um, um, my experience is, is that writ large, 
the revolution in the 18th and 19th century about, about where our brains should be going has been brilliant and proven by science. They didn't have the science at the time, but they anticipated. In fact, one of the great geniuses of this is Rabbi Shmuel David Luzzato from Italy, and he had a, 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 a philosophy of Judaism that focused on compassion as the essence of all the mitzvot, and, and he was following the great moral sense theorists of England, uh, Hutchinson and Shaftesbury, and everything about him was education of the young. And he anticipated John Dewey and all the others. The biggest problem we have is that the, the men, because they were mostly men theoreticians, didn't take seriously the minds of children the way that women do, honestly. In other words, they never came up with an educational program. They came up with fancy political structures. They came up with you know, uh, Congress and presidency and Supreme Court, and that's all great. But if the people running those institutions are infantile, if they have an arrested development, if they have no moral empathy, because nobody, nobody trained them in that, they, maybe, they trained, maybe they were taught math and science, but the brain is a tricky thing. I've met many, many people who are professors at Harvard, and professors even in conflict resolution, who couldn't control themselves for a second with a child that was being difficult. And I've seen them wallop them across the room. Yeah. With advanced degrees, with advanced mathematical genius. So that means that the brain is a very tricky thing. We think it's highly developed because you have a PhD in math or you're a Nobel laureate, and it's not true. That just means that one part of the brain is developed, but the part that deals with how to um, control the, the, um, the amygdala when, when assaulted and whether the moment that somebody sees a child acting out, it's somehow they're flashed back to their own childhood and so they hit because they were hit or they lose their temper because they were lost their temper. That hard wire is there. And nobody in that entire PhD in mathematics or in conflict resolution stopped that hard wire. But the truth is that we know how to stop that hard wire. We know that when you teach people novels and when you have them go to movies and discuss people who are radically different than themselves, their brains change. So the people I grew up with that had those PhDs and then walloped their kids, they didn't go through that. So our entire educational system is wrong. The Enlightenment is a brilliant advance, but, it's no, but we're not teaching the, 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 the core of what the Enlightenment's message was. We don't, we don't even have people memorize the Bill of Rights, but the most important thing we need to do is to have people memorize the habits of empathy. That changes the brain completely. I'll give you an example from something I just saw recently. Okay. We all know that many of the kids that have shot up their own schools killed their own classmates with guns. So we can look at the structural analysis of why they have a gun in the first place. We can look at the structural analysis of the assault rifle. But we can also ask ourselves, why did they choose to shoot their, their peers? And we can, we can focus on that and focus on it and be miserable about human nature. Or we can be a teacher that figured out that she told the class, we're going to have a bench in the middle of the playground. And in that bench, 
Everyone, anyone who's lonely and doesn't have a partner is going to sit at that bench, and the rest of you are going to go over to that person and invite them into your game. Do you know how many lives are probably saved by that new institution? Do you know how many kids suffer alienation that then go on to more and more alienation and, and exclusion, that because of that, the violence just builds in them and builds in them? Especially, you know, men, men rage builds in men like nothing else. It's massive. So this little bench that's a new innovation is a place, and I've seen it operate, and the kid goes there, and within, you know, they ask the kid, how long do you stay here? He said, oh, about a minute. To imagine to not feel lonely for even, you know, more than a minute. I mean, how many of you have memories of isolation in, in elementary school? You know? So if you had a, a sense of isolation from your class and there was an M16 at home. So this is the reason why the innovation among children and adolescents of more and more creative processes of empathy, not just movies, not just novels, not just uh, you know, poetry, um, not just philosophy, but really um, uh, real, real creative innovations that educators have. The educators have to be married to the brain scientists here. The great philosophical architects of democracy need a strong dose of educational creativity that makes that into the habits of the mind and the heart. And that's where I think you know, things are, are going to go in the future, and it's already happening. And the reason, the reason we know it's already happening is that there are many countries that are, that, that are far, far, far less in the violent scale than the United States at this point. In the United States, the northern states are far, far on the less violent scale than the southern states. It's, it's, uh, the scales in the, United, in, in the south are, are about 7 to 10 higher, 10 10-fold 10, higher than Sweden and Switzerland. Um, the northern states are about the same as, as Switzerland. And a lot of this has to do with attitudes to corporal punishment and so many of the other things that that we know make people more or less violent. As far as um, the deeply intractable one that you know, we, we share, the focus I've had for you know, 20, 30 years is to focus on the peacemakers, and not the peacemakers, and here's where it's become innovative, is that what I've discovered is that, that people confuse political positions with behavior. They think that if you vote a certain way, that you're part of the good guys. If you don't vote that way, you're part of the bad guys. It turns out that's not the case at all. It turns out that the really creative work across enemy lines is coming across people who build those relationships person to person. It's not a political position. We've been making a mistake of thinking about political positions and not about relationships. The core of the future is relationships, so that's all I do. And I don't know at what point in history the critical mass happens that those people who are in relationship start to get a bigger and bigger voice in the society and build something together. But this is the exciting work that is, again, is not in the news yet. Um, we have some of my close friends. I worked for many years with settlers who were building deep relationships with Muslims. In fact, the settler rabbi that I worked with the closest had a deep relationship with the head of Hamas, the one in prison. That's crazy. I couldn't do what he did. I, like I said, I shy away from very violent people. But he did. 
But the upshot as a result now is that you have, you have settlers and Palestinians talking to each other about coexisting together, whereas other people are making this movement to make it harder and harder for Jews and Palestinians to, to be in the same room. And that's a paradox. But I don't care about politics so much, and I don't care about political correctness. I'm interested in relationships. So those are the exciting relationships I see. And it's not because I ever agreed with the, you know, the settler rabbi or the chassid or the ultra-orthodox. It's that I just wanted to see who is having who in their living room. And the biggest test that I've seen on a global scale for, for pe enemies who are truly changing is people who sleep together. What I mean by sleep together is that they're willing to go to sleep under the same roof. Because how you vote is, is very, very little of your life. But when you're ready to go to sleep, that's the ultimate act of vulnerability. And I actually got very close to a uh, priest and an imam in Nigeria. And, they, and if you Google it, you can look up the imam and the pastor, Nigeria, and you'll see these amazing films on these two people. And they were part of groups that had been killing each other, and they were in the killing, and then they became these leading peace activists in Nigeria, and they've trained thousands of people. There is hope there. And they told me, the, 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 the pastor is particularly brutally frank, and he told a large audience, and he said, you know, uh, and they'd already rewarded him, and he'd been acknowledged, and they brought him to Switzerland, and he says, you know, even after we became peacemakers and we, we, they always put us in the same hotel room, and I, I thought at night, you know, when he was sleeping, I said, maybe I should kill him now. <laughs> but of course, he lost his hand, he lost his family. I mean, you know, this is, this is real. And the fact that they went to sleep and woke up and continued to wake, uh, go to sleep and wake up, that's what became a hardwiring, a new hardwiring of the brain. That's what I look for. And I don't know when that's going to be a tipping point in that particular war. But, but all I know is that everybody who makes any relationship across those lines is doing something positive. But I wish we'd have more educate. I wish we'd have a bench everybody could go to when they feel alienated or something. You know, I don't even know what the, all the answers are in terms of shifting it, and I'm more interested in the adolescents and the children because um, each and every generation, they're the ones that, if you see all the terrible scenes you see on the news, it's all teenagers. Some of them are in uniform, some of them are not. They're all teenagers. You see most gang war warfare, it's teenagers. So that's what we have to focus. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. What's, what's your name, please? David. You use the term critical mass and you use the term tipping point. Yeah. And uh, what, I, what I think I hear you saying is that uh, there, there's, there's a... There's a large movement uh, walking up, up this side of the teeter-totter on the playground. And we, do, we don't know how close to the fulcrum we are. But at some point, uh, when things move, they're going to move very quickly in the right direction. That's what I'm going to say. Yeah, and that's true in epidemiology, too, of both sickness and health, is that there's a cascading effect. It's not linear, but there's a cascading effect of when people's health collapses, because there's too many factors that are just making them sick. And then at other times, there's a cascading, where you don't know 
uh, how to fix somebody, but we know that stress is very involved, and so they meditate and they meditate and they do they do this and they take vitamins and they drink and they get a lot of sun and and they do uh, they do healing work on themselves about their feelings and then and then one day this chronic disease starts to not be tyrannizing them anymore. So that's a cascading effect, and that's what I'm looking for in in human relations, and I think we've seen that in a number of places that you don't know when that's going to happen, but um, but it it it's it's the way in which we all get involved. It's both less than all of us and 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 all of us are are involved. We each are making decisions, and 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 um, and the research on social network and tipping points is a very persuasive research, and I think it's much better than talking about interfaith dialogue or dialogue between the police and the community and having a big session where everybody's screaming at everybody. Most of my experience is that that custom of putting everybody in the room and having them duke it out is actually sometimes destructive. It actually, I, I've been in meet, many meetings where people come out and say, oh, now I know why I hate them. <laughs> so, you know, that dynamic is not necessarily the most productive. The most productive is relationships. Uh, the Passover seders. I mean, we're solidifying a new Jewish-Christian relationship of an unprecedented nature in history. We're healing the wounds of history with every Passover seder, every Christmas when when Jews go to a homeless shelter and help out with families and all of that. All of this is a part of the glue that's trying to make history different. Now, people think, well, no, you don't know if history doesn't really change. Tell me. Where are the Anglo and Saxon gangs killing each other in England? They don't exist. Nobody even knows who's Anglo and who's Saxon. Does anybody really think there's a danger of a French-German war at this point in history? First time in a thousand years. So there are ways in which things change. And believe me, it wasn't because of World War II. It was despite World War II, because the people at the end of the World War II made a conscious decision to make the commerce of France and Germany inseparable, to make the people inseparable, to create more perfect unions, to make laws that would apply to everybody, to not punish one country or the other. All these things that made it inconceivable at this point that would be French-German war. Now, that could happen with Iran and Saudi. And I've been calling out the United States. I've been calling out officials. Washington is bought by so many, so much Saudi money goes into the institutions that it makes it impossible for people to talk about this problem. So I'm not talking about demonizing Saudi. What I'm talking about at this point is simply stating the problem. Just like a good psychologist, you first have to state the problem. And then you start coming up with solutions. The solution is not demonizing and hitting on Saudi. It's that, hey, you need to sit with Iran. You need to stop using other countries. We want you to have a peace treaty. That will help you. And that would be the first stage of trying to, to lessen the proxy warfares around. And nobody's even naming it yet. And you can't get to solutions until you name it. The United States, in some ways, is going in a good direction by naming a problem with policing. OK, let's get to the table. Let's talk about what would be different, what could be different, using the power of our imaginations. But first, we have to build those relationships to be ready to get to that exercise in imagining a better future. So, yeah. Okay. Thank you so much.